Hey Matt, what's going on? It's so good to see you again, right? I, I relish these opportunities to be face-to-face with you and not have necessarily a specific athlete or a specific squad or a specific issue, right? Where um, where we basically have to sequester ourselves in our little corners and, and, and get on with the job. We can we can and speak to each other a little bit more. Yeah, well, I know that uh, this week we have outdated by the time we have this podcast come out, but uh, PTO Singapore, pretty excited about that. I actually uh, just looked on an advertisement for what you can watch for Singapore, and it was pretty exciting to me that I actually saw both Chelsea Sodaro and Ben Knute on that ad, which was pretty cool. Um, actually, first time I'm saying it out loud, but I started to work with Chelsea about six weeks ago now, and uh, we've made a ton of progress. She's super excited. Just got off of a Zoom session with her, actually, and uh, Ben as well. So really excited about uh, what we're working towards here. So I'll be up at midnight on Friday night for uh, Chelsea's race and then Saturday night for Ben's race, but couldn't be more excited about that. All the all the hard work and and be able to see that in action. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the same boat as you. I know this will be a little bit dated, but I'll be up at midnight tonight because it's the Olympic test event, and I've got Victoria Lopez racing in uh, in Paris, and obviously very very excited to see how the the U.S. men and women do um, uh, in, in that Olympic test event. It's always a first look at the Olympic course. It's a first look at the city. It's a first look at the kind of conditions that they're going to get. Of course, there won't necessarily be the same amount of spectators, but it'll be very, very exciting. And then a ton of countries have Olympic selection uh, predicated on this event, right? So there's a lot of athletes that after midnight tonight, uh, for the women, the women are tonight at midnight, will we'll know whether they're representing their country or not in, in Paris in exactly a year's time. <laughs> Yeah, a lot goes into just one day, right? And it's uh, it's that's the real difference to me when you're talking about working with elites. It's it um, is about timing, and it's about getting that timing right, and that extra percentage that you may be able to achieve on the day. And so that's always exciting, and also at the same time, uh, my blood pressure rises, right? <laughs> so. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. My wife was at an, a meeting um, for school where there was another parent that said he's been listening and will not miss an episode, which is a great honor. And that's, that's of course, what uh, the whole goal is, is that we get people uh, obsessed like we are with <laughs> the details. But it made me uh, think a little bit more about making sure we are getting back to the basics and discussing what it is that we can do about our run form. Our Actually, our producer, he brought up this morning to us that a lot of people really don't understand if and how they can change their run form, if that's something they should really do in the first place. So, you know, climbing the backs of giants over the years, I talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect with you guys. And in the 
very beginning when I was a newbie as a coach, I may have been a, a pretty decent rudder myself, but I really didn't know how to help other people get to those higher levels. And form always kind of came natural to me. It was something that people told me early on, like, wow, you have such good form, right? And uh, although I will say that the miles took their toll and the intensity took its toll, and and that wasn't necessarily true for me in the later stages of my 20s, I'd say, especially. So, you know, can we change that? And of course, we have some, I think, some good answers for that, some things that we can simplify for people listening to maybe get you a little bit more tools for your knowledge as somebody who may be a newbie or even somebody who has that uh, sort of that average um, interpretation of what run form is and whether or not we can change it, right? But interesting to me, I was actually looking at a really good YouTube channel talking about the the Dunning-Kruger effect and how initially we absorb all this information until we quickly rise to um, the peak of Mount Stupid, right? <laughs> and, uh, yep, yep. And I certainly, uh, you know, realized in my career when I was at that peak, and you kind of you think you know what you what you know, and then slowly you start to realize that you don't know what you didn't know, and there starts to become sort of that steep drop off where you're at that valley of despair, they call it, right? And and you. You slowly start to rise that slope of enlightenment. So I, I I think of that in my career as both an athlete and a coach and realizing that it was a lot of other coaches like yourself putting out run transformation, putting out programs where I could start to understand and know what I didn't know for the first time, really, even though I had been doing it most of my life. Right. So I think this is an important conversation to have today, something that I hope will help uh, a lot of people just simplify some answers for them. Yeah, and I didn't even discuss this with you. You're absolutely right. And I think there's two parts to this, right? Um, you know, very clearly today is going to be about can can you change your run form, right? So so that's that's pretty that's a pretty cool topic. But I think people are also hungry to know. Okay, we got this guy, you know, Matt Pendola looking at me and he just notices things straight away. We've got this guy McGee looking at me, he notices things straight away. And, you know, why does that excite coaches? Why does that excite runners? And 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 why are we still around after all this period of time? Right. So um I think that's the second part, right? So so like, okay, what are you seeing, Bobby? Give give us some examples and and what can you do about that, right? So I think to let today be about, you know, maybe opening up and remember we're in the same boat right there's a ton of stuff that we don't know we don't know and the beautiful thing about it is is when you stop pretending that you know everything you start learning so much faster right and I think I I am grateful every day that that's my mentality that I'll walk into a room and I never feel that I'm the smartest person in the room and that opens up the faucets of being being able to learn right I'm always blown away when I go to a congress or a symposium or something like that, and somebody who's who I've not necessarily heard of before is is saying something, even just in a small group conversation, and they come from you know like a business background or an engineering background, or something, and they say something that just blows my mind, and they've known that all along, right? 
and I'm reminded of a fantastic story. I was listening to NPR, National Public Radio, years ago, and it's one of my favorite stations to to listen to in the car. And I was listening to two of the world's top experts on on um, uh, particle acceleration, right? And they were working with this. Uh, I think it's in France. It's this particle accelerator that's fifteen hundred meters around, right? And then they race these particles around and they smash them into each other and they see what happens, right? And right in the middle of the conversation, these two brilliant individuals talking to each other, right? And the one suddenly stopped and he said, you know what? Would you say that we know quite a lot about this subject? And the other one said, yeah, I, th I, th I think we're right up there. And he, and he said, because right now, I know very little about what you're talking about. And the other guy said, I feel the same way, right? So it's just it's just so human, you know, humbling to know that I'm excited, right? I'm an older individual, but I'm excited that there is so much. There's way more that I can learn than I've learned, you know, which is a great place to be. So, all right. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Bobby, with with that all being said, somebody who has been doing a lot of their own reading and research over the years, they they may have questions for us where they feel like it's a stupid question, right? Because uh, imposter syndrome does exist. And I think for people wondering if they should send us in questions um, and they're afraid that they're not good questions, remember that you and I both have suffered from imposter syndrome over the years too. And so I actually tell that story when I do teach some seminars, some classes, I have some people that do mentorship under me for strength. And just recently, I was at a gym here in Reno teaching a uh, chest supported uh, row. And the trainer there, he was fumbling a little bit and he was trying to explain all the details of why we we're doing the movement. And then he finally said, well, I, I know I, I know I don't know what you know um, and I know I'm stupid. So I'm just I'm just waiting for you to give me the answer, really. And I, I said, we got to stop right here. We're not going to learn a thing if if you really think I have all the answers, first of all. And uh, I'm learning as much from you and your questions and your intentions than anything else as a coach. How do you think I learned more details about this movement in the first place? Because there was somebody who had the experience and had the time to teach me, and now I'm doing the same with you. But the questions that you're answering and giving or uh, asking as well are going to be the very questions that open up the conversation and help me help you, right? Jerry McGuire, help me help you, right? But it's so true. And from that point on, I think that he got so much more out of that conversation, right? And yep. the other thing I will say is um, I have to mention, I'm reading this uh, book by Lauren Fleshman, which is uh, Good for a Girl, and amazes me absolutely that that book. Uh, I, I love the book. Chelsea recommended it to me. But in that book, I realized um, how tough it is also for a lot of the female coaches to be able to really get ahead in our industry. And so I would like to hear more also from our female audience, runners or coaches on questions they have. So finally, I'll bring this part up before we move along. But one such coach is Shannon Clausen, who's uh, out of Salt Lake and 
She's a wonderful coach, kind of works with a lot of different triathletes, but likes to specialize with Paralympics. And she has so many great questions for me, but I told her um, a story that, that you had once told me, which is just ultimately that when we are learning to do something as simple as tying our shoes, we're creating a ritual for ourselves, right? And we are starting to build on that ritual, which also helps to really calm us down and keep our mind clear so we are able to perform at our best, both mentally and physically, and be present, be aware. So I, I joked around last night and I said, okay, first thing I want you to do is tie your shoes, right? Because she know, she knew what I was referring to there, but all of her loaded questions came down to such simple answers. And I think that blew her away. I said, you actually know this. You are just overthinking it because you don't want to let your athletes down. And she said back to me is that um, she always felt like she was kind of overlooked as a coach, especially a female coach. And to be able to have these kind of conversations to say, hey, I'm learning just as much from you by having this conversation with you is so important. So you know, whatever kind of athlete or coach that you aspire to be, know that we do want to get these questions and we do want to help you with the basics. The fundamentals are repeated and repeated and finally mastered over a an entire career, really, and we're never really there. You, myself, or our listeners, right? We're all learning together. Yeah, yeah, just so so many things came up there in, in what you said. I completely agree. I once learned, uh, I think, 1996 in the lead up to the uh, Atlanta Olympics. I, le I learned the concept, um, don't participate in anything where you feel you're not getting as much as you're providing. And, and, and so if you're, if you're with somebody, if you're with a runner, if you're with an athlete, if you're with a coach, uh, and your mindset is this is uh, this is a collaboration. This is a sharing. This is there's no point in having any kind of skill if you can't provide a service with it. And a service means people are coming to you to get that service. So each one of those two people is you're not just this high and mighty person standing there providing blessings to to somebody, right? It's it's absolutely does not function if it's not a hundred percent fifty fifty sharing. You know, you're getting just as much out of it. I'm with you too. You know, and I often say I don't have heroes in uh, as athletes, right? Just because of where we play our roles. But there is one now, just when you mentioned her name. I am a huge fan and have been since the beginning of Lauren Fleshman. And it's not because she was a magnificent runner, right? It's because of what she provides the community. And I started off with Lauren. She did, she did this tiny little video, YouTube video, years ago. I don't even know if most people who know Lauren know this video exists, of her doing form drills beautifully, doing, doing you know, uh, drills on the track and this little videotape and her talking. But ever since then, her her work in the community, her, her stand for... Uh, athletic rights uh, for women and and that whole thing is she is a unbelievably special individual yeah and a phenomenal writer too by the way i i highly Absolutely. recommend the book no you she's know. she's just yeah she's one of those people you can be completely jealous of because 
she's got a she's got a lot of stuff. But the biggest thing about Lauren is she shares and she yeah. goes out there and she does she does you know she puts her money where her mouth is over and over and over again, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. All right. So again, our question, and we have not actually digressed. Our question is: Can and should you mess with your run form? And I and I get that question just as many times as as what you get that question. So let's just start off with: We have known for a very very long time that gait correction or gait remodeling or changing your gait has been a thing for a very long time especially in the orthopedic community. It is clear that you internally rotating and it's putting pressure on the tendons on the inside of your knee. And if you keep running that way, you will keep getting injured up to a point where you will no longer be able to run. And then these myths come up like running is bad for my knees, right? And then I think the next thing that you offer is, is okay, the initial approach that we had with strength and conditioning and physical therapy was that is a fatal error. And the only way we're going to prevent that fatal error from continually hurting the athlete is to strengthen that area, to bolster it up. Now, there's two things that I always want an athlete and a coach to understand is that if something is falling over, a shed is falling over in your yard. I always use the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but a shed is falling over in your yard, right? And you're just a regular guy and you don't want your shed to fall over. Well, you go out in the garden and you'll put some posts in there leaning against the shed and you'll anchor them so that the shed doesn't fall any further. Now, there's two problems with that, right? The function, the three-dimensional function of that joint is still out of range. It's still at a place where it's going to be hurt, right? Also, most of the kind of strengthening work that you do is based on a static concept. So at that point where the knee's being hurt, that's where we're trying to strengthen it. The second thing is strength is too slow. The speed at which that movement happens is the is the concept, right? So moving from, if I want to push this car, I can push it slowly. I'm still pushing it. But the speed at which the foot hits the ground and everything starts to happen, we know elite athletes, 200 milliseconds less, and everybody else trying to get to 200 milliseconds or so, because things start collapsing over time. Gravity accelerates over time. If you hit the ground and your mechanics are terrible, but you're off the ground real quickly, the effect is far less, right? So I can see the way you're nodding your head and so on. You've got a piece here. So go with it, Matt. Yeah, because I will say that we actually had a comment um, from the, one of our previous podcasts, and that person was saying no running beating gravity down is bad for your knees that's that's what they were still saying right and i thought okay i'm upset that i read that comment but then um harsh part of me said well we have to explain it further we have to explain it better and we're hoping 
that we're not vilifying somebody who is willing to write a comment like that, but we're also explaining it better to maybe start to change their minds about how they're thinking about this process, right? So what you mentioned before, yes, absolutely true. You have to have coordination and control mastered first though, right? So when we're talking about the knee and we're doing something as simple as touchdowns, right? So we're on a stair and we're now going to bend our knee that's on the stair keeping our floating leg straight and just having that heel touch the ground lightly and coming back up, right? And we're building that uh, overall kinetic coordination and control for that joint. And we're doing that globally, right? And then we start to work towards more elevation. We start to get higher and higher where we're starting to now get a little deeper and deeper as we go. And eventually that person may be doing, say, a pistol squat or a version of a pistol squat, right? Now, that is an example about how I actually have been working with uh, one of our marathoners, Ryan Peel. And we did that in the early stages. But then we started to work on a little bit more of that ability to be able to react faster, if you will, right? So leading to your point here, when we started to do plyometric work, the first instinct that he had was just to be able to go as fast as he could, right? And especially in the frontal plane going side to side. And I listened to him and how loud he was in that drill. And I said, you know, we need to be a ninja. So before we go any further, I want you to learn to land as softly as possible, as quietly as possible. And so rather than just repeating these jumps on defaults, we started to take that coordination, that control that we learned in something like the touchdowns, and we started to use that much more effectively with two legs this time, because with two feet, we can produce a lot more force for that power, which is something I prefer to work on with runners in particular initially. And so what they're starting to look at is just beyond him just jumping rope at overspeed, which he's able to do efficiently and use those springs just linearly, right? Now we're starting to work on that side-to-side -side work, right? Which is going to be a lot more of that lateral line, right? That line from the side of your body, really from your armpit and all the way down to your ankle, right? And going side to side in that frontal plane does a lot of things that runners need, but you want to think mainly about balance and stability. So I will kind of simplify this with saying that he's now just being a ninja and working on just hop side to side quietly. Even if that means he has a little jump rope, if you will, a little skip in between his hops or two or three of them until he's centered and ready to hop to the side again, right? And so that's kind of a progression that I like to work on. And at the same time, when we look at overall balance and that ability to be able to have that knee operate like a hinge joint, then we are looking at uh, things like heavy farmer's walks where you have dumbbells on each side of your body and you're walking with control in a straight line forward, backwards, and then finally around the room like figure eight style. 
these are all fundamentals that I believe we all have to be able to address and to look at a little bit further. That way we have the knee set up in front of us. We have the ability now to spin the earth and we are starting to look closer and closer at being able to be a pusher, not a puller. So finally, I really like all of this to boil down to, are we able to start pushing effectively? And if we are, then running is not bad for your knees. And I hope that was, you know, um, a, a concept that people were able to kind of bring into their mindset about those steps, because that progress can feel really slow, but it's well worth the journey, especially if you consider um, a few months of purposeful work there that can now uh, help to transform that running over the period of your lifetime. Yeah, I, I, I think that is a good example, uh, Matt. And I will just return to the second half of what we started off with, right? So if that knee is inwardly rotating and that leaning tower of, of, of Pisa is falling over, right? Yes, we do want the strengthening. We do want the shortening uh, of those tendons. We want increased stiffness, right? We want all those things. So go, go back to the individual who made the inquiry saying, if I push my foot to the ground, I'm going to bang the ground harder and that's going to be worse for my knees. Now, it's such an interesting conversation. So I'll, I'll go through the notes that I looked at, right? So every single one of the individuals that I work with on a bigger scale, in other words, I'm their run coach as well as their mechanical instructor, all right, experience this. They run less and they perform better. They run less and they perform better. And the third part of that is they are now able to run more and therefore perform even better. But these are not this is not wishful thinking. You teach somebody how to run whichever way you address it, whether it's a strength thing, whether it's a range of motion thing, whether it's a coordination thing, whether it's a skill thing, whether it's a balance thing, whether it's an endurance thing, whatever, that increases their consistency and their consistency increases their performance. But it just occurred to me is that when an athlete has been with me for a while, they say, I am the same or better than that athlete, but that athlete does two or three times more than me. And I'll say, okay, if they could assimilate two or three times more, they would be better, but they're not assimilating that. They're breaking down, right? So, um, and, and to get back to your point about why should people do stuff bilaterally if they're landing on one foot, right? Because it's a accumulation of things. Yes, we are trying to move towards simulation. But at the moment, the gate is hurting them, right? So let's, let's go and have a look at that. So when you're doing things bilaterally, your one leg might be contributing only 37% of what you need because that's all it's capable of contributing. But if you leave it on its own, it can't do it at 37%. It can't do it at all. It will break down. So the other leg is contributing, you know, that that 73% or whatever, uh, contributing to a 63%, sorry, and making it possible for that leg to do its 37%. That's why bilateral is so important. The other thing with bilateral is 
coordination is not as challenged and balance is not as challenged and load is better distributed. So, you know, when you're starting off those things, that that's very important. Now, back to that question. That's a really important question. When you say to somebody, beat gravity down, you're trying to increase cadence. You're trying to decrease vertical oscillation. You're trying to increase leg spring stiffness. And you're trying to decrease load. Now, are you shoving the foot down to the ground as fast as possible? Yes, you are. You're driving that foot down to the ground. That's stiffening. But proprioceptively, what's happening? You're not smashing a surface as if you're trying to break the surface. There is a massive deceleration just before you hit the ground. I remember with the 2008 Olympics when uh, he's, he's subsequently passed away, but uh, the guy that won the marathon there in, in, in heinous conditions, I think his name was Sammy Wanju, and, and Sammy ran 206, and it was like 87 degrees and 78% humidity in, in, in Beijing, right? And there were these photographs of, look, Sammy is a complete heel striker. There he was, like milliseconds from the ground, and his heel was clearly going to hit the ground first. But when you looked at that at 250 frames per second, just before his foot hit the ground, down came the forefoot. He landed midfoot, and then the heel kissed the ground. Got one of the greatest runners ever, right? And so, for people to understand that when you when you're driving your foot down to the ground, you're not driving it into the ground. You're driving it to just above the ground, and then everything stiffens and receives and gathers. You're also not going directly into the ground. You're moving backwards while your body moves forwards and the, and the surface is, is stationary. So it's in such an eloquent, eloquent, symphonic, graceful movement. You're driving down with power like a gazelle, right? But as you get to the ground, you start gathering. You don't decelerate. You stop bloody dead and your foot stiffens to receive the ground. So you're not going to the ground with your full force. You're getting, you're getting to the ground as soon as possible. So it's, it's fascinating that, again, in that conversation, it's a really good conversation to have, but it's just a partial conversation, and the conversation must continue. You know, you would go, okay, I understand how you're seeing it at this point in time. Have you considered this? Because I've seen runners take that to heart and then really stomp the ground, right? But what does a runner do with your sound principle with Ryan? The minute they start pushing their foot to the ground, they become quieter. They become softer. They become more springy. So they aren't hurting their knees. They're actually protecting their knees by going to the ground, beating gravity, reducing the decelerate, the vertical deceleratory forces that are created by gravity. Yeah, and I think your analogy about a basketball works really well, where we look at that basketball as being deflated if we have asymmetries. If there are that one leg versus the other you've discussed here, that uh, one leg is essentially working much harder than the other, those kind of asymmetry, asymmetries, that's like air that's missing in the basketball, right? And 
now you have to really slam that basketball down and it's going to thud and it's going to be really loud and it's not going to be rhythmic. And you can hear that when I'm running with others, I can hear the thudding. I can hear the slapping down. That is different than beating gravity down. And the way I think of it is with our run form uh, principles and pillars, we're carefully working on the mobility, the motor control. We're working on getting that ability to have that rhythm. And we are slowly inflating that basketball to its perfect bounce, right? And so ultimately, that's what we want to hear is nice, crisp, rhythmic running. And so there is technically going to be some sound there, but it's not a thud. And it's very, it's a beautiful sound. It's it's like music, it's a, right? It's a pop sound. It's an ASMR sound that you can absolutely hear. It's just a little pop sound. Absolutely. You know, just, just occurred to me right there, this current generation of runners that are getting this massive advantage from these new running shoes, right, from the midsole materials that are giving such high return as as well as, as the carbon fiber plates, right? None of them at the very highest level learned how to run in those shoes from day one. So I'm really interested to see the eight and the nine and the 10-year-olds that are growing up using these shoes from day one how that's going to impact that. Because research is clear to us, right? Individuals who are not skilled runners and didn't learn to run the, the organic fashion, right? That put on running shoes and then get told that these running shoes will solve all their problems, right? And world global warming and everything else, right? They trust the shoe too much. And so nice research has shown that if you tell somebody you're running on a crappy running shoe, they protect themselves. They run more effectively. If you tell them they're running in a running shoe that'll solve all your problems, they stomp. They trust that the midsole material is going to do everything for them. So, you know, we've got to, we've got to bring that, form, that part into it, right? So back to where we started saying, okay, can you change your run form? All right. So what is your run form? Your run form follows what your body allows. All right. So it follows what your body knows. It follows what your body has repeated. And if that's not working, you're stuck on a plateau, you're injured, you can only go a certain speed, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you stick your tongue out, all right? There are limitations, right? We know that with sprinting, you teach people how to sprint, right? Sure, you're born with the muscle fiber type and the anthropometry to be a good sprinter, just like you're born with the anthropometry to be a good swimmer, but you taught how to swim and you taught how to sprint, right? Now, if you think that running, endurance running for most of our community is not an organic learned from day one, ran down to the river to fetch water, ran back, all right? It's just as requiring of learning as anything else is requiring of learning, right? So if you have no restrictions, you have good anthropometry, you have healthy ranges of motion, all right? You've grown up in a movement environment that is multi-planar, okay? Um, then your body will run the way it was designed to run. But that's almost nobody. 
That's almost nobody. All right. So now we're looking at this person's running. They've come to see us. They feel we can help them. So their mind is in a good place. They have a performance mindset. I want to get better. Even if that means I want to get injured less because that means I want to get better at at that, right? I don't want to get injured, okay? So now what do you and I look at? We look at asymmetries and we look at restrictions. And I think a lot of people view run form only in terms of kinematics. And then I like to bring up that thing. A, 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 an excellent swim coach will look at a swimmer in the water and know if they are fast or a slow swimmer. Whereas a running coach, if they see this little snippet of somebody running, has less of a chance of knowing whether this person is a good distance runner or not. All right. So that just points to the fact that kinematics is a part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. All right. So kinematically, you can see leg spring stiffness a little bit, but not as much as you would see it through like, a 12 hop test or, or something like that. You know what I'm saying? So um, looking at, is this a mobility thing? Is this a range of motion thing? Is this a stability thing? Is this a postural thing? Uh, is this a balance thing? Is this a strength thing? Is this a power thing? And realizing that it's that it's maligatoni, right? <laughs> maligatoni is a kind of like Friday hotel um, bubble and squeak, right? Like throw everything together. Everything is important, but which one is the most important and which one do you or I address first, you know? So I'll just say, Matt, I don't see much wrong here uh, in terms of how they move their skill level, but there's clearly a, a range of motion deficit or a, a power deficit or a strength deficit. And similarly, you say, Bobby, there's an asymmetry here that neurologically I'm not quite seeing why are they doing that. I'm trying to follow the kinetic chain, but something's not making sense to me. But together, we'll, we'll come up with an answer or we'll find an answer, you know? Yeah, and it brings me to the point of the basics are the best, and we actually want to become very efficient to be effective, right? So we just had this conversation about what some of our athletes are doing in championship season. And really, they're mastering at this point to become as efficient as possible by being as effective as possible in the movements, right? So minimal effective dosing at this point and less is more. And I actually had an athlete that I whittled it down to three movements that I wanted as close to mastery as possible. So to give you an example, going back to those uh, pogos saying, okay, I want both feet to be paired up and I want that popping that you're talking about there. I want that to be your main focus, not how fast you do it, right? Not how many of it, how much of it you do. And that mastery can take your entire time to get through in, say, the 20 minutes you allot yourself, right? And that's going to get you further than trying to get through 10 movements and not really focusing on any of them, right? So first thing to me is that you really start paying attention to the details. Devil's in the details and looking at just results overall 
the the main point I want to make here is that time and time and time again, when I talk to people who have gone through our entire program, right, not just once, but really gone through it and get to the point where they have really become effective in these mood patterns, they may not be able to tell me in the words I would describe of how they got better, but they got better, right? So, you know, what's the answer to uh, knee pain? Good training, right? <laughs> like getting back to the basics here, Mike Boyle, he's a, a strength coach that um, I I did a lot of research and and following up with and through over the years. And um, Mike was always kind of famous for saying that the best uh, training for ACL uh, knee injuries is good training, right? So, you know, we are talking about these stacking the joints and having the mobility, the stability, the motor control, having these uh, this irradiation where you have good stiffness through your core through your trunk and that transfers to athletic movement patterns that can feel really overwhelming and yet really all we can boil it down to is to say that what movements you are doing do them to the best of your ability and don't accept anything less than the best version of yourself and you're going to make improvements will you be perfect no but you will get closer and closer to that mastery. And then lo and behold, oh, geez, it's kind of interesting. But now my neck doesn't bother me. I didn't think I did anything for, for my neck, right? Well, instead of my head position being jutted forward, now I have that chin and chest in line. I don't have all that weight uh, distribution throwing my center of mass off. And I didn't even realize that I had made those changes because I was actually focused on the basics. And now what we were working on originally with an athlete that says, okay, how do I change all of this in my run form? You, you're, you're looking at a graduated approach with these answers uh, coming over that learning curve where you were unconsciously incompetent. And then finally, you are unconsciously competent, right? So we're we're looking at that learning curve being a process of mastery and consistency for mastery means that we are now able to be uh, efficient and that is effective, right? So um, embracing that process. And uh, last thing I'll say on this subject is what I tend to see as one of the biggest mistakes is that people will put too much variation into their training. Right. So there's a difference between variation and planned variation. Yep. Yep. And all right. And I won't name coaches here, but I've I've recently worked with an athlete that was saying, like, I don't think I ever repeated the same workout twice. And my trainer was always saying, Well, that's muscle confusion, and we're constantly just challenging your body in different ways. And I'm like, BS, man, that's that. That is a simple answer for the coach probably didn't have a real plan to begin with. When we have planned variations, that means that we are seeing the progress. We are testing, retesting. We're starting to get that visceral response we want. And now it's time to move on to something different or what we've been doing isn't getting the result we want. So we start to get some other variations in there that we think can help us. Right. And so Essentially, this comes down to uh, trusting the process, but really committing 
and not jumping around to several different programs, right? I'd prefer that somebody even repeat our program until they feel like they've mastered the basics. Banded dynamics are all these basic coordinated and controlled movements where you don't just contract, but you have to react with the bands. And yet I feel like I'm still trying to sell it to people that clearly still need that mastery where really uh, the people who went through it and truly owned the movements, I don't need to ever sell it to, right? <laughs> so, you know, that is that is a concept that I want people to simplify in their minds that it's actually not hard to get these results if you are consistent and you have intentional and good intentions with your learning process, but that consistency is going to be key. It's not practice makes perfect. It's perfect purposeful practice makes progress and we keep working towards more of that progress. You know, Matt, I, I have seldom in the course of a, of a podcast got my ego so distinguished that I can completely let go. Right. So I've got a little, a little example here before I say that, right. You know, the wonderful conversation in, in our world about what constitutes core, right. And everybody gets, the basketball conversation, right? A empty basketball or a flatter basketball does not bounce as well as a stiffer basketball. And a basketball that is over stiff then becomes damaged, right? It, it, it ruptures. So you can be too stiff, right? And then what you look at is, okay, let's take this basketball an analogy further into this world of the humunculus, right? And say, okay, if we put a skull on top of a basketball, and the soles of your feet on the bottom of the basketball, that means everything but your head is your core. <laughs> everything but your head is your core, right? But now to get back to this whole egoic distinguishing thing is, you said it, and it was funny, I was thinking it in a big fashion. It was filling up my head and my chest, right? That this whole thing of trying to convince people. If you and I have worked with the caliber of people that we have worked with for the amount of time that we have worked with that caliber of people, it is really a disservice to our community to feel like we need to sell things, to convince things. Why did we design run for? Because there's only you and me. And you and me are always ready to admit that there were a plethora of giants who provided their backs for us to get where we got. And we still climbing, right? And we hopefully taking some people with us. That that's where we should be is, is like, we've got something for you. We can't go to, we, we can't be where our athletes are now in that, you know, Singapore and those places. We can't be in Paris. We can't be everywhere all the time, right? So that that's our effort with the with the podcast. That's our effort with run form, right? So I think that that sort of encapsulates this is can you change your run form? Yes. Should you change your run form? It depends. Why should you run change your run form? If you're getting injured a lot, if you feel you're not getting any faster and one of the things that lim is limiting you and one of the factors that is part of running economy is mechanical economy. It's not everything, 
but it's a lot. It's the engine versus everything else, that ability to deliver power. Yeah, no, it's really well said. And I would say that on that part of the conversation, I, of course, agree with everything you're saying there. I also look at athletes who are just, again, back to that Dunning-Kruger effect where they may not uh, know what they don't know. And they actually have in their minds good form. They uh, are happy with the way that they're currently running. They're not getting injured, but there's that deeper desire in them to get more out of themselves. And when you mentioned about being able to uh, have a run faster or have you have a performance plateau, sometimes that pat- plateau is not about getting uh, further up um, you know, on a podium in people's minds. It's more about being able to finally be able to get that mountain route that you always wanted to be able to achieve. And that does require that mechanical um, economy efficiency that we're talking about. And so those goals are still in front of you and achievable. And that means that you can now take it even 5% further. Is that worth it to you? If your answer is yes, then I think that run form is for you. So I think obviously when you're talking about people who have injuries, when you're talking about people who have plateaus, and when you're talking about people who have bucket list items in their minds that could even be something related down the line to um, not even running. So I'm thinking right now of the 82-year-old I work with for longevity, Les Nesbitt, and uh, his ability to be able to hike 20 miles in the mountains with a 40-pound pack on just to challenge himself, that is more than just a hike out there. That is giving him a reason every day to get up in the morning with a new challenge that he's retired and saying, how can I get myself to be able to give a little bit more so that I can enjoy my life into my 90s, right? And so that becomes, to me, an even bigger goal, a bigger performance goal. It gives you purpose. It gives you control of your of what you're doing every day. And to be able to have that control, uh, Les cannot wait every week for his new assignment, right? Yeah, and yeah. So, you know, and again, the basics are the best. And when I talk about, you know, what we worked on this week is those heavy farmer's walks I talked about. So, you know, at 82 years old, he's walking with 80 pound dumbbells. That's 160 pounds. He's going backwards. He's going forwards. I tested him and retested him on his balance. His balance got better in this progression. And our goal is to be able to walk with his body weight. So that's going to be 105 pounds in each hand. That may seem something that like a lot of people don't even care about doing, but for less, that gives him a real purpose. And that is behind his economy, behind his ability to be able to express that force over a 20 mile up and down vertical uh, height with roots and rocks and uh, et cetera, right? And the elements. So, you know, these are all things that I think are important to consider about yourself when it comes to do you want to improve your form? And uh, I'm biased, of course, but I will always be trying to master this process myself. And yet, I don't know if I'll ever have a substantial performance goal 
Um, you know, after 50 now, it might be something like an Ironman, but eventually it's going to be more geared towards the things that Les is working on. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's a, a great summation, Matt. And I'll I'll finish my part of the podcast here by saying you started off with uh, talking about what we don't know, we don't know, right? None of us know what we don't know, right? And I view that this approach to run form from a perspective of uncovering, right? We all know that the way to get into the flow state is to let go of your attachments to something specific. You put it out there, you strive towards it, you set that target, right? But the rest of that process is a letting go process. That's how you get the runners high, right? Um, and it's the same thing here. I'd rather view run form as removing everything from each individual that wants to play and wants to participate. That is not their best running form. All right? And we, we're not giving anybody anything. I've never viewed myself as a coach that has something to give. I've always viewed myself as a teacher saying, let me see if I can play a role in helping you uncover what is holding you back and put those things down. All right. And so what, what is missing in your joint is stability. Let's get that stability that that joint has always been capable of back. What's missing in your posture is the ability to load effectively on toe off. Your posture is at the wrong angle at the wrong time. It's not that your posture is wrong. It's just that your posture is not the best posture that you could have, and so on and so forth. It takes the pressure off everybody, you know? So, I, you know, I, I just become more and more excited every time we talk because Forcing ourselves to be able to express in a, in a verbal environment what we are trying to provide um, is, is, very, is a very good way of us uncovering better ways to communicate and better ways to do these things. So, Matt, yeah. you know, from my side, thank you so much. I think, you know, it was one of those try to be simple, but it was, it was heartfelt, right? It was one of those things where we needed to have this conversation. Yeah. And, uh, I'll finish my part by saying, talking to my uncle actually in Florida, he's a guy that ran most of his life. He no longer runs. He doesn't think he's able to, he has a strength coach. I think the coach has done a lot of good things with him, but you know, the interpretation again is that, well, your run form is your run form. And he he sent me some studies basically um, supporting the fact that you just basically don't want to mess with your run form. And I told him, when you're ready, Pat, when you're ready to listen to this, I want you to try our program. And for him, I'm looking again at longevity, even if he's never going to run competitively or worry about how fast he's running. Because we're just trying to shake the rust off, as you say, and embrace that process of getting back to the way you move. Because the kinematic conversation, the way that our body is built and moves, 
that's not always going to look exactly the same. That's why we kind of veer away from saying, well, your run form should look exactly like this. And a lot of people want that from us, right? Whereas I'm saying, yeah, we're getting back to play. How did you look when you were a kid running around, just enjoying yourself at the park and challenging yourself to, you know, beat your friend to the next tree and then climb up it, right? This is where we're getting to organically. This is the fundamentals and we want to restore your fundamentals. And I think that is something we can all achieve regardless of our uh, goals. We want to be able to get back to our best selves. Thanks, Matt. As always, thanks for listening to the Run Form podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was that was awesome. Yeah.